Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Alamogordo. More information about First Baptist Church can be found at www.fbcalamo.com. If you will, take your Bibles and go to 1 Timothy. We're going to start in verse 3 this morning and read down through verse 11. Uh, so if you, if you missed last week, um, really all, all you missed is we, uh, we introed the book, did kind of a short introduction, and then I read uh, all of 1 Timothy. So uh, this morning we're going to pick up and really, really kind of start this, this series. And uh, we're going to start in, in verse 3, as I said, read down to verse 11. And um, I've, I've titled the message this morning, Doctrine Matters. Now that's kind of a, a double entendre, uh, which is maybe the first time I've ever said that from the pulpit as well. Uh, so, so we're, and the reason is we're dealing with doctrine matters, but also it's important to know that doctrine matters. Okay. Does that, does that make sense? Did I lose everybody? And again, uh, I think I said this last week, but uh, doctrine simply means belief or teaching. And so this morning we're going to focus on sound doctrine uh, simply, there, therefore, um, doctrine that is correct or teaching that is correct. So we want to make sure that as believers um, and specifically as, as those who are part of a local church, that we first of all believe right things. And then secondly, that, that we teach or are taught right things as well. Okay. Uh, and, and so uh, if you will take your Bible, go with me to first Timothy chapter three, and let's stand as we read the word of the Lord this morning. First Timothy three or one chapter one, verses three through 11. Um, this is what the word of the Lord says. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather and to open up your word together. This morning, will you show us what it looks like to, uh, as a local body of believers in a local church, to understand sound doctrine, to teach sound doctrine, to believe um, right things as well. Show us how to do that this morning. We ask all these things in the precious, mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Man, thank you. You can have a seat. Um. Now, this might seem kind of like an odd thing for Paul to launch right into, uh, because in a lot of his letters, particularly his letters to the churches, right after he introduces himself, um, he'll launch into kind of this section of thanksgiving. In fact, in the letters to the churches, the book of Galatians is the only letter we have that Paul doesn't immediately uh, tell his audience how thankful he is for them. 
And yet, so knowing that this is written to Timothy, who, whom Paul calls his true son in the faith, you, you would think that maybe Paul would launch in and say, hey, I want you to know how thankful I am for you, how I'm praying for you. Instead, he launches right into talking about sound doctrine and at the same time, false teaching that was, that was taking place in, in the church. And so the, some of the, the, the commentators that I read simply said that this was maybe such a pressing matter that as Paul's writing this, or as he's dictating this letter to, to his secretary, um, he, he introduces himself, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I got to tell you something, Timothy, right off the bat. Uh, just, just like I told you when, when I left Macedonia, um, you, you've got to handle, you've got to take care of these false teachers. Now, what's really interesting is if you look at the history of this church in Ephesus, um, this should not have been surprising because Paul said uh, a while back that, that he, he knew this was going to come, that these false teachers we're going to take place. Uh, we're going to come up. So, in fact, in Acts chapter 19, I don't have this on the on the screen. You're welcome to turn there if you want. Um, in, in Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 28, this is what um, we're told about this church in Ephesus. Luke writes about that time there was a major disturbance about the way, which is what uh, followers of Christ were called. They were called the way. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. When he had assembled them, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hand are not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one all of Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, now understand what's happening here. As Paul's preaching in Ephesus, people are turning away from, from this cult that worshiped the goddess Artemis, and they're turning to the true God. And as that's happening, suddenly people are no longer buying these little idols of Artemis. And so this guy, Demetrius, who was a silversmith, who made a, a, we can assume, a good deal of money off of making these idols and selling them to people, his business was suddenly hurting because people weren't worshiping this false god anymore. And so he creates this riot within the city of Ephesus. That's in Acts chapter 19. Now, if we fast forward one chapter to Acts chapter 20, this is what Paul tells the church at Ephesus. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up, even from your own number, and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years I never stopped warning each of you with tears. So Paul's getting ready to leave, and he issues this warning to the church at Ephesus. Be on guard. 
Because after I leave, there are going to be, as he says, savage wolves who come in. And then notice that he says, even among your own flock. Within the church, there will be those who arise who are not preaching and teaching the truth. Watch out for them. So now, fast forward a few years, and and Paul's writing to Timothy, and right off the bat here, verse 3, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine, or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. So the first thing I want us to see right off the bat here is that sound doctrine is uncompromising. It's uncompromising. It doesn't give in to, as he says here, myths and endless genealogies. Uh, Now, now we know from some of the writings and some of the ways that that Paul addresses Timothy that Timothy was perhaps kind of a timid individual, maybe not a real strong character. Um, Maybe he was tired of the difficulties he was facing in Ephesus and potentially was even considering moving on. As, as a pastor, maybe he was ready to throw up his hands and say, I can't, I can't deal with this anymore. He wouldn't be the first, and, or he might have been the first, but he would, certainly wouldn't be the last pastor who said, I'm out. Paul, however, urged him to stay and to fight for the faith. Now, we, we can ask, what, was, what exactly was he facing that was so difficult? Well, more than likely, through, through my study and through my reading this week that I've done, um, th- there seems to be an, an agreement that, that Timothy was dealing not just with church members who were teaching false things, but even with elders in the church who were teaching false things. Um, we see this for a number of reasons. For one, uh, we're told that they are teachers. And in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul will say that teaching is specifically a uh, a role that's laid out for elders. But that's not all. In uh, chapter 1, verse 20, Paul will mention two of these men by name, men whom he calls Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom he actually says, I've handed over to Satan so that he can deal with them. Um. And then also in chapter 3, we see that Paul lays out the qualifications for for elders, perhaps showing us that there were some men in this church at Ephesus serving as elders who were not qualified for elders, qualified to be elders. And and therefore, Paul is saying, Timothy, these, these men are not qualified. Here's the qualifications. You need to find some men within the church that are qualified to serve as elders. And then finally in chapter 5, Verses 19 through 22, Paul's going to say that elders who are caught in sin should be publicly disciplined. And so all of these things put together within the context of the overall letter and the fact that he's launching into this right off the bat, we can at least infer that perhaps these were not just church members that were teaching wrong things and believing wrong things, but actually leaders in the church, elders in the church who were teaching wrong things and Um, leading the church astray. And Paul tells Timothy that you must instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths. Um, 
Now again, in, in verse 4, we're told that they were teaching myths and endless genealogies. If you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, there are a lot of genealogies there. There are a whole lot of lists of family uh, members. In fact, even in Matthew and in Luke, we're given the genealogy of Jesus, his, his family history. Um, and, and so again, while we have only one side of this conversation, we, we can infer that what's happening here is that these guys took some of these genealogies and built a system of teaching based on them. Maybe based on uh, certain people from certain families in uh, Judah's history were more blessed than others. Or maybe even allegorize them, meaning, well, these genealogies don't just teach us history, but they actually mean something. And so if we take each of these people, we can, we can deduce a meaning from each of these people's names and, and, that'll and just kind of go off crazy off of these genealogies and begin teaching not the, the foundational truth of God's word, and in this case, in the New Testament, not teaching the foundational truth of the gospel of Christ Jesus, but getting out there into something else and teaching primarily something that's out in left field. Um, so I guess, you know, maybe we don't get so caught up in worrying about these endless genealogies or, or trying to trace your line of faith back to Abraham. But, but I think at this point we need to pause and ask, what are some of the myths, some of the um, dangers for us today? Um, if you walk into any Christian bookstore, you will see uh, a kind of a list of books um, in Christianity, and this is true of Christian bookstores as well as secular bookstores. If you go into a Christian bookstore, you will find kind of this Christian self-help. Built really, I think, on this philosophy that God helps those who help themselves, which is completely false. The gospel is not that God helps, helps you when you help yourself. The, the gospel is that God helps you when, when you're completely incapable of helping yourself. Or God helps you because you are incapable of helping yourself. Another section we'll see is heaven tourism books. What's, what's been come to know is, is heaven tourism. These folks who claim to have died and gone to heaven and come back and they have this great revelation about what heaven is. The, the problem with that is nowhere in scripture do we see anybody dying, going to heaven, and then coming back. And, and yet, how often have we bought into those? And, and, and almost what I've seen in, in the churches that I've served People longing for that experience. Man, if I could just get a taste of, of heaven. Listen, you, you want a taste of what heaven is like? Get to know God the Father with whom you will spend eternity in heaven. Don't worry about what kind of music you're going to hear when you get there. You, you'll have an eternity to hear that, okay? You're not going to get bored, I promise. Focus on knowing God now. This God whom we will worship for all eternity. Um, one more and then we'll move on. Uh, again, we've seen kind of this rise of a word of faith uh, slash prosperity gospel movement, simply meaning that, that if, um, if you're really saved, if you're really earning God's favor, whatever that means, um, God wants to prosper you in health and in wealth. Um, again, the problem with that is we don't see that in scripture. Um, Jesus himself said um, that birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Um, we see Christ calling his followers to take up their cross and follow him. And, and that may or may not include a huge bank account. Um, and, 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 it, and again, the, 
the focus on that is so much on the temporal, right? Stuff that you don't get to take with you when, when you go. In fact, we're going to see, we see that that was probably even popping up in the first century in Ephesus because Paul addresses that in 1 Timothy chapter 6 about greed and how people understood money. And so uh, all I would say is simply this. Let, let's focus on the basics, all right? Because doctrine is un, sound doctrine is uncompromising. This is why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also heard, that Christ was buried, that he was raised on the third day, that he appeared to the apostles. For, for Paul, that was the message that mattered. And, and hear me, you can never move beyond that. that that's the foundational element. And, and, and once you dive into and understand the depth of the gospel, you will understand I think you come to the realization that we would never want to move beyond that foundational truth. Um, in fact, in, in Revelation, this church that's one of the most important local churches we have in the entire New Testament. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2, Jesus has harsh words for this church. We see this in, in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. It says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. See, this church that was, that, that was key in the New Testament, that we have so many letters written to in the New Testament, lost their focus on the only thing that mattered. Maybe they were doing good work. Maybe they, maybe they had some great social activities, but they missed the main thing. They, they, they missed Christ Jesus. And he says, if you don't refocus, I'm going to remove your lampstand. And, and whatever you will be, you will no longer be a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so, so listen, as a church, I want to make sure that as... Part, part of my responsibility, I believe, is, as we see here, is to make sure that we're focused on the main thing, that we don't get so caught up in peripherals, but that we keep the main thing, the main thing of following Christ Jesus, all right? So if, if false teaching is dangerous, um, how can we avoid it? Well, Paul goes in next, right? So, so the first thing is, is sound doctrine is uncompromising, but the next thing that we see is that sound doctrine is uncomplicated, it's uncomplicated. Remember, Paul was saying that, that these guys were going into myths and endless genealogies. And so then in verse 4, he's going to refocus Timothy here and say, um, excuse me, in verse 5. Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. So in refocusing, Paul just talked about these, these false teachers that are following myths and endless genealogies. And he says, look, the goal of our instructions, love. Now, now the word that's used for love is agape. It's the unconditional love that God has for us and that we in turn are supposed to have for other people. Now again, this, is, this goes right back to what Jesus said, right? Matthew 22 in the great command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And that's the first and greatest command. And second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. 
In Romans, Paul's going to say that love is the fulfillment of the law. You want to know what it means to know Christ? It means that, that we will have love for God, love for other people. That's why love is the first part of our mission statement, to love God completely and to love others compassionately. But it's not just, again, it's understanding the word that's used, this agape is key, because it's not just a kind of a fond feeling. It's not the butterflies in your stomach love. But this is love that's uncompromising, that's unconditional, that's unflinching. So that means on the days that you like other people, you love them. And on the days that you don't like other people, you love them. You love them when you get along. You love them when you don't get along. And in a local church, that means that just because maybe the church doesn't look the way you wish it would, or uh, people don't always act the way you wish they would, you don't push back from the table. You don't say, I'm, I'm done here. But we love each other in spite of our flaws and God willing, other people love you in spite of your flaws as well. So uh, Paul says three things here. He says, uh, the goal of our instruction is love that issues from a pure heart. So in New Testament times, the heart was understood as the seat of man's morality. Kind of the same to us today, the seat of our emotions, or, or in, in the New Testament, the seat of man's morality, where his, where his right actions came from, they issued from the heart. Uh, Jesus referenced the, the pure in heart in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And then secondly, he says we want it to come from a good conscience. Uh, the conscience was understood, much as we understand it now, as the ability to know right from wrong, right? If you're familiar with Pinocchio, Jiminy Cricket was his conscience, right? Telling him, good, telling him right from wrong. We, we understand the, the conscience. And, and, but in 1 Timothy 4, Paul will talk about those who've turned away from the faith, and he said whose consciences are seared. The idea there is that much, much like your skin, if you burn it severely, you're going to lose feeling in there. He'll, turn to, he'll refer to those in 1 Timothy 4 who've turned away from the faith, and they no longer rightly distinguish right from wrong. A pure heart, a good conscience, and finally a sincere faith. And this is literally a faith without hypocrisy. So a faith that's real, not just a show. A, a faith that looks the same on Monday morning as it does on Sunday morning. Paul says those, we, we want to love one another, a love that issues from these things. Pure heart, a good conscience, sincere faith. And verse 6, Paul referred to those who've, that have wandered away from this and turned to what he calls fruitless discussions. Um, now, the, the word that he uses here really refers to speech that's aimless. It won't accomplish anything in the lives of believers or unbelievers. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't have a point. It's, just, it's fruitless conversation. Small talk. Now, now listen, when you're building a relationship, there's nothing wrong with small talk, right? It, that, that's how you get to know someone. What he's, I think what he's getting at here is that the problem is some have wandered away from the faith so much that they have nothing but small talk. There's no substance to what they talk about. Within the church or outside the church, there was no substance. They didn't have any, um, any kind of base for their discussions. And so in other words, they were majoring on the minors and spending time focusing on things that don't really matter in the end. 
I like the way that a pastor by the name of Brian Chappell described this. Um, he said it was not so much that they set out to be heretical. Like they didn't set out saying, hey, let's come up with this false teaching. That sounds like a lot of fun. Listen to this. He said they simply wanted to, quote, go deeper into the scriptures. They wanted to go beyond the, quote, simple exegesis of Paul. And by giving people and events allegorical meaning, simple stories would reveal fantastic truths. They did not set out to abandon the gospel doctrine that salvation is by faith alone. But in fact, their pro progressive accretions smothered the gospel. Okay, we know the gospel. Now let's go deeper. Paul's too simple for us. Let's go deeper. And in seeking to go deeper, they abandoned the gospel to begin with. Later on in chapter 6, we'll see that Paul has harsh words for those who claim to be teachers, but are only concerned with these fruitless discussions. This is what he says, uh, 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 5. It says, if anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. See, these same men apparently wanted to be teachers of the law, yet Paul says that they themselves did not even understand it. We see that, and that leads us to, verse, to, to our third point here, which is simply that sound doctrine is useful. It's, it's useful. It's beneficial to us. Um, I don't know if you've ever been a part of a church where you've heard a, a pastor or a leader say, uh, well, we don't really deal with doctrine, we just teach the Bible. We, we don't deal with doctrine, we just teach the Bible. We don't really delve into theology, we just teach the Bible. Uh, the problem with that is you, you can't do that. Because the Bible is theology. It tells us that theology is simply a word that means uh, the study of God. So you want to study the Bible, you're studying theology. We want to make sure that what we believe about the God is coming from the truth in God's word, not from the culture around us, or even from our own fanciful ideas of what God might be like. And, and, and listen to me very carefully. Where your understanding of God differs from the scriptures, the scriptures are not the one that's wrong. where your conception of how God operates is different from the Bible, the Bible's not wrong. Our goal as followers of Christ is to align our beliefs with what Scripture teaches. So even when the culture says, this has to be true, and if you don't believe this thing, you're a bigot, and the Bible says, no, that's not true, we stand on the word of God. Because in case you haven't noticed, next month the culture is going to change what it believes about whatever. The word of God will not change. Sound doctrine is useful. Let's stop, pick up in verse 8. He says, but we know that the law is good provided one uses it legitimately. 
We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. All right, so, so Paul's going to talk about the use of the law. And he says the law is good, but it has to be used correctly. Now think about this real, really quickly. If you have a hammer and you use a hammer properly, you can do a lot of good. However, if you don't use it properly, you can do a great deal of harm. And the same is true of the law. If used properly, the law, or let's, let's even extend that out and say that the word of God. If, we, if, if used properly, it can build up the people of God and call sinners to repentance. But if you use it constantly to beat people over the head, just like if you did the same thing with a hammer, it will cause a great deal of harm. And our culture is littered with folks, I believe, who've been abused by the word of God and who now want nothing to do with church because their understanding of church, and, and again, this, I'm in a stereotype, okay? So let me lay that out there. Yes, I'm, I'm going to lay out a stereotype. Their, their understanding is that church is made up of a bunch of religious hypocrites who don't actually believe what they say, but they just want to use religion as a weapon to control people. And they want to use the word of God as a, as a weapon to beat people over the head who disagree with them. Now listen, if you ever hear that, like, I would have a couple of, of recommendations for you, okay? First of all, immediately don't, don't say, well, that, that would never happen, okay? Don't, don't say that would never happen because I can tell you through conversations that I've had with people, that has absolutely happened. And secondly, say, I'm so sorry that that's been your experience. Can I show you the truth of what God's word says? And take them somewhere like John 3.16, which talks about the great love that God has for us. Not, not to use this as a weapon to, to control people's behavior, because, listen, lost people are going to act lost. In fact, even the Bible would say that, that, that people who don't know Jesus will act like they don't know Jesus. We can't expect lost people to act like saved people because we have something they don't. We have this, the Holy Spirit living in us, revealing God's truth to us, and convicting us of sin. And in fact, Paul says that is the purpose of the law. This is why he says um, in verse 9, We know the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious. So, so what is Paul getting at here? Does a righteous person need the law? Well, according to Paul, no, they wouldn't. Now, if you're thinking immediately, well, cool, then I don't need the law. Let me burst your bubble for a second, okay? Because the Bible is going to say very clearly, uh, let me throw a couple of these out, Romans 3, 10 through 12, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. So a righteous person doesn't need the law. That's awesome. No one's righteous. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There's no one who does what is good, not even one. Okay, then Romans 3.23. Jump down a couple of verses. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
So, so understand this. The law was never meant for it to be a checklist uh, for, for you to see how good you are. No other gods before me. And scratch that one out. Um, don't murder. Hey, I haven't murdered anyone. No, I haven't murdered anybody lately. Awesome. Don't commit adultery. Uh, well, no, I've not. No, I'm not committed. Don't lie. Uh, well, I, not in the last five minutes. Hey, I'm a pretty good person. No. It wasn't meant for you to read, do not murder, and think, hey, I haven't murdered anybody lately. I'm a pretty good person. No, it was meant for you to read Exodus 23, the first commandment. Do not have other gods before me. And for us to see that and to realize that, that, that I fail in this every single day by allowing something to creep in and take the place that only God should have. And then... This despair that comes from knowing that we fall short of God's law and his glory and his righteousness, righteousness should lead us to understand Romans 6.23, which says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the whole point of the law was, was so that we might understand that I'm a sinner deserving of death and eternal separation from Almighty God, but the good news of the gospel is that Christ came and he kept the law perfectly. And he died the death that I deserved. That's the point of the law. To show us God's standard for righteousness. And for us to understand that I can't keep that. So I'm in need of a savior. And so listen, if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, I, I really do. I hope and pray that today's the day. And if you're here and you're already a follower of Christ, you may be wondering, okay then, what good does the law do for me? So, so let, me, let me wrap up a couple things here. First of all, it should remind us that even though we still fail to live perfectly, God has made us righteous when we were unrighteous. 2 Corinthians 5.17 He made him, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Later in that same chapter, it says that he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that in him we might have, we might experience the righteousness of God. And then secondly, it should remind us of how God wants us to live as believers, that he, he desires as believers we have no other gods before him, that we would honor the, the name of God by the way we live, that we would honor our parents, that we would treat life with, with respect, that we would be truthful. So listen, as a follower of Christ, you've been entrusted with the gospel and commanded to spread the gospel. So don't get bogged down into deeper things. The gospel is not just the kiddie pool. The gospel is the entire ocean. And it's big enough to swim in for your entire life and never reach the end. I think that's a grave mistake that we've made. We've, we, we've made it seem as though the gospel is the kiddie pool and then we can move on to something else. There is nothing else. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 1, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me, the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. This is Paul's charge to Timothy, a pastor. 
Hold on to this. Hold on to the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the wonderful opportunity that we have to gather and to worship and to open up your word together. I'm so excited about this series through 1 Timothy. I pray this morning that, that as followers of Christ, we would not be tempted by myths or by fruitless discussions, but that we would focus our lives on the gospel, on understanding that we've been saved by grace through faith. This is not of ourselves. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. That we would understand and believe that we are a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. That, that we would believe that, that you sent Christ to become sin for us, him who is sinless. That through his life and death and resurrection, we might become the righteousness of God. And that we as God's people might devote ourselves to sharing this message far and wide in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our community, and around the world. May we never get over the simple truths of the gospel. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Alamogordo. We are located at 1100 Michigan Avenue in Alamogordo, New Mexico. We meet on Sundays for small groups at 9 a.m. and worship at 1030. If you have more questions, please email office at fbcalamo.com or call 575-437-5510. Thank you for listening and may God bless you this week.